Previously on Untangled Faith. I think what that tells us is the answer, I believe, is not that we live without story. We are made as human beings to need that. We are consigned to hopelessness if we reject all story in our life. It's that we have to make sure we're grounded and dwelling in the really right story, the the true gospel story that is centered around Jesus and not the subversions. Curtis Chang shared how hopelessness is related to a loss of story and community. And I introduced you to two friends who are grappling with this reality. A story they believed was true took some plot twists that caused them to begin to wonder if they were in a different story than they thought, and if the people who had sold them on this plot even believed it themselves. In this episode, therapist and author of the book, Traumatized by Spiritual Abuse, Connie Baker joins me to clear up some misconceptions about grief, and we'll hear more from Kat and Emily. I'm going to say something that a lot of people, I think, find surprising. I don't see denial as an intrinsically bad thing. I think it's essential because we cannot bear the weight. I think about what happens when, a, you know, somebody comes to a door to give a death notice of a family member. What we see is the first word out of their mouth is no, mm. no. It's that initial, my system cannot bear the weight mm. of this horror. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Here's my conversation with Connie Baker. What does grief look like for somebody who has walked through spiritual abuse? And I am asking that with the assumption that probably doesn't look the same for everyone. Yes, you're correct. (laughs) Ever so correct. And that's probably what, when, if we're talking about grief, you know, I just want this of all things, our discussion to be able to give some permission. Your grief process is going to be your grief process. And even if somebody went through the exact same thing, which they didn't, because even if you're an identical twin and raised in the same house or went to the same church, there's still going to be differences in what you experienced and how you interpreted it and how you perceived it. So let's just give a lot of permission right off on the subject of grief. It's going to look like your journey. And a lot of people want to tell you how that journey needs to look. And I'm going to say it's your journey. I think that for religious abuse, when I think about it specifically, I think the first thing that came to my mind was uh, tangible and intangible losses, losses that we can put our finger on. But there's all kinds of losses that are uh, much more difficult to put our finger on. Things like people and places and your routine and your schedule, these things, you go through usually a lot of loss if you leave a church. Or if you step away from the faith, these are, I think, more tangible, even though sometimes we have to think, what does it even mean for me to lose that person or that place or that routine? Or we still have to really kind of look and say, what does it mean that I don't, for instance, maybe go to a Christmas Eve church service anymore? I call them a little bit more tangible. We still need to look at them and say, well, what did that Christmas Eve service actually mean to me? 
I have a heart for all these intangibles that we lose. And I'm thinking about things like meaning, purpose, what is truth, feeling so disoriented. All those have grief and loss involved in them. They're much harder to pin. When you're talking to somebody, you know, probably they're coming to you knowing that they have some loss that touches their, their faith. But do you think people usually see it as grief? Do you ever have to say, I think you're sad? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always say, okay, this is super simplistic. Don't ever quote me on this in like some psychology thing. (laughs) But I think most of us get this. We all have tendencies toward what negative emotions we're most comfortable with. Yeah. And by negative, I mean, when ones that don't feel good, I don't think any emotions negative intrinsically. Some people are super comfortable being mad immediately. Some people are super comfortable being sad. And some people are super comfortable being fearful. Mm. Those are those, our brain has told us I can go there without a lot of threat. So I guess there's a wide variety of people who come to see me. And some of them are immediately like, this is so sad. I've lost so much. And they're totally aware of the grief and other people are, yeah, are just on fire too, but they're actually at a point of grief that the people who are sad often don't want to get to, Mm. that is a needed part of that cycle. So you're going to need to feel all of those at points in your life and acknowledge them, even in this grief process. Yeah. I think that's a great question because I think it's going to be temperament driven. I was actually pretty clear on my grief because Mm. I can go sad easily, but boy, for me to get really pissed off, like I needed to, took a lot more effort and was much scarier. I brought up the topic of the Kubler-Ross grief cycle and Connie surprised me with her take. I don't even call it a cycle anymore. I call it a mosaic. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about the mosaic rather than the cycle. Yeah. Well, I just think the cycle implies sequence. I love the words and the categories that it gives us. The denial, uh, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, the acceptance, we're now finding through research, it is helpful to label our emotions. Mm -hmm. It steps us back and we're able to observe it a little more. So that I think is the beauty of how it helps us. And I think we need to see it much more as a mosaic, uh, just Mm -hmm. kind of almost a splattering. Sometimes you can have two of these or three together at the same time. And and then you totally skip one. You haven't felt one for months. And then all of a sudden it pops up. But yeah, it's not just that it's not linear. It's that you could be simultaneously experiencing some of these. Oh, totally. You feelings. bet. I think denial and bargaining often go together. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and depression and anger can really go together, especially mm-hmm. in men, because men are given more permission to be angry. And that's how their depression sometimes comes out. In my own experience, I feel like denial happened before the final rupture. Yes. I wonder if some people, if people have actually started to be in that denial stage bef- before that death of that dream or that relationship. Before and after. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm going to say something that a lot of people I think find surprising. I don't see denial as an intrinsically bad thing. It really does serve It's us. essential. Because we cannot bear the weight. I think about what happens when, when somebody comes to a door to give a death notice of a family member. What we see is the first word out of their mouth is no. It's that initial, my system cannot bear the weight. I think it's a beautiful, and if you have this worldview, God-given, something that serves us to be able to 
to cope with how severe the loss is. The only problem with denial is when we need to be seeing signals that something Mm -hmm. is dangerous. Yeah. Sometimes those are simultaneous. They will be being deeply injured, but another part of them cannot bear the implications, just like you said, the weight and implications of actually leaving outweigh the horror being done to them right there. And I think that's really important when we talk to survivors to be really gentle, to get why. Why is this happening? Uh, And I I think denial has gotten a bad rap. Now, (laughs) yes, it can injure or literally kill a person. And so we want to deal with it. But and to give there again, that goes back to to me, the the freedom and permission. That's a hard thing to hold when you have friends connected to a community that's hurt you and they are not where you are. It's hard. There's no easy path. There's no easy. And Amy, even I really put this in the category of domestic violence as Mm -hmm. well. I, you know, walk through a lot of domestic violence with women and by violence, physical is the final manifestation, but I mean, psychological violence, sexual violence, you know, in an intimate situation with that, you look and you think this is hurting them so bad. I also have to look and say, unless their life's in danger. And I tell them this, I'm not going to tell you to go or stay. Mm -hmm. I don't have to live with the outcome of either of those really dramatic, traumatic, life-changing choices. And it's the same with the church. Mm -hmm. But for us to get in and try to rescue them, we're lacking an awareness of their frame of reference and the painful choices that they have to make. Dr. Hassan, who talks about high control groups, he says, you really have to allow people to have agency. Otherwise you're compounding what has already happened to them with taking away their choice. Can I take a highlighter to that, please? And just highlight that whole thing. (laughs) And to jump in and tell a person, here's what you need to do to get out of that situation. It's not honoring. And and I have to step back and go, that's not my job. And there was a part of me about five, six years ago that just started getting so mad at my earlier self. Why did you stay? Why did you stay? I had to go back and say, whoa, careful. Why did I stay? Answer that. It was my whole world. Yeah. I had to go back and give myself compassion and say, of course, that's what you did. And honestly, it might've been the smartest thing. There are going to be certain personalities that are going to be more open to feeling what they're feeling, but let's talk about the person that I'm done. I left last week. I'm moving on. And they haven't really even grappled with what happened to them. Is that a good idea? I'm going to say good luck with the, I'm moving on. Let's chat in five years. In some ways, I go, honey, do it as long as you can, but it will come back. If there has been genuine trauma gone, it's made an imprint. Trauma changes our physical brain. You're going to process it somehow. Do you want to process it directly or do you want to process it indirectly and ruin a bunch of relationships? And it's going to come out sideways. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, to be, again, be compassionate, it's a form of denial. I want to see recovery. I think realistically as a stop and start process. One of the things I often say is good mental health is the ability to put something in the cupboard and the ability to take it out and bring it into the room. Almost nobody I know does that perfect, but I guess this whole idea of denial and saying, I don't want to deal with this. I'm moving on. All of this is connected to say, there's going to be an ebb and a flow. 
Mm-hmm. And any grief process, you'll talk to anybody and they'll say, I was feeling fine. And then out of the blue, slam. I'm like, oh, there it is. In the, out of the cupboard, into the room. Perfect. That's exactly what. And then the person says, ah, I'm tired of this. Put it back in the cupboard. Or I have to put it back in the cupboard. Appropriate. Last week, I introduced you to Kat Wilkins. Kat and her husband, Colby, accepted a new associate pastor position at a church in late August of 2018. Not long after they arrived, they had some discomfort regarding some things that were happening. Six months into their time at this church, Colby preached, and upon meeting up with the senior pastor, the senior pastor publicly shamed Colby because the sermon went over the allotted time. Think about that for a moment. Take in that power differential, the public nature of this, and imagine the kind of scrambling that was happening in Colby and Kat's thinking as they attempted to make sense of all of this. And it was kind of like, not just, hey, you went over. It was, this shows me that I can't trust you. He did it in front of a guy who was to become an elder, who was kind of one of our closest friends, um, who like saw it. And, you know, at the very, very end, when we mentioned that event of like, yeah, you, you know, this guy screamed at Colby, he nodded because it was like, yes, he was there, you know, so that wasn't, we weren't making that up. Do you say it was that it was the first time that there was like a major conflict? Yeah. Yes. You don't know if this is just a one-time thing mm-hmm. and it's going to be resolved, but still super devastating because this is the person in charge of your livelihood mm-hmm. in front of all of these people that you're relatively new to. Right. What was that conversation like later, like between you and Colby? As I'm sharing Kat and Colby's story, I'm using the grief cycle, or as Connie Baker describes it, the grief mosaic, to frame their experience. It's impossible to miss the way denial played a huge part in their early experience with this church. I can only assume, based on what I remember, that Colby would have said something to me. He wouldn't have come to me and just said, oh my gosh, you cannot believe this guy just yelled at me. He would have kind of tiptoed to sort of saying it was really intense or it was kind of harsh or, you know, he raised his voice. And I really don't remember which part of that makes me wonder if he was already telling himself the story to make sense of it and make it somehow okay. So that when he came to me, I was kind of like, oh yeah, you should talk to him about that. Cause that doesn't sound right. Cause in other times when my husband would bring things up. So the quote I mentioned would be, well, I knew that was a risky thing to say to you. I knew you would take that the wrong way. Other iterations that we heard were, well, I didn't say it like that, or that never happened. A one-time incident can certainly be painful, but it wouldn't have been as much of a concern if there hadn't also been a pattern of criticism and lack of ownership on the part of the senior pastor. And that's exactly the cycle they found themselves in. Over those two years, I would see my husband coming home from work And I'd see him being dejected. And part of his story is struggling with people-pleasing, fear of man, and being like tender, kind of being tenderhearted and sensitive. And that had been somewhat negatively labeled at his previous work environments, even though it really was, I believe, such a gift. He would come home and I would be thinking partially based on so much of the networks that we are a part of, having built this trust, right? So one of the questions on your forum was about did your attachments to any people or denomination or networks impede your ability to see the truth? 
because we had so many co-mentors and co, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't say mutual friends, but sort of, there was a sense of like, all these people that we love and respect are backing up this guy and, you know, helping us find each other. Actually, there is a sense of, okay, well, I know that my husband is struggling in these areas and he shared those and he's been very open about them. And so my own perspective would just be, gosh, you know, this is hard and conflict is hard, but you can do it. They seem to have valued that about your husband before you showed up there. Yes. And anytime when there's sort of a disappointment, you're trying to make sense of what's happening. You're, mm-hmm. you're sort of in that denial already to protect yourself. And I think that's really interesting. What are the things you did, you, you said to yourselves or to each other, make this seem like, you know what, it's okay. This isn't really, this mm-hmm. isn't really bad. This isn't yeah. a bad place. This isn't the bad place. This is the good place. Yes. Cause we needed it to be the good place. I remember almost word for word, multiple times saying, well, of course you're going to have conflict. Conflict is normal and it's healthy because even in our marriage, he's grown in the ability to really face the conflict. I was sort of seeing that, which I don't blame myself. I couldn't have known to do anything different, but it's just sad to look back and remember those moments where I was functionally being used to kind of turn on my own husband and, and minimize and dismiss his own experience. Yeah, that is really heavy. You were working to resolve that cognitive dissonance, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is what we thought it was going to be. This is what they said it was going to be. And Mm -hmm. it's not, and I can't live with that tension. I need to write a story that resolves that. And there were times when probably due to that later on, he would come home and I could just see it on his face. Mm -hmm. But I sensed that there was this hesitation that he didn't want to tell me what had happened. That is sad too, just to imagine like the chasm that was being created, partly because I was minimizing and dismissing his experience. But also there were times he would tell me what happened and I was angry. And so I would be like, he cannot talk to you like that. Was that affirming for him? Or was that, did it make him be like, ah, maybe I shouldn't tell Kat what's happening? The second one, because he was already coming home dejected and discouraged and obliterated in some ways, putting on a happy face, couldn't fake it. I mean, I'm just thinking about how much it would have felt like an up is down and down is up. Sometimes I was going to affirm him and be like, oh, that's horrible. I can't believe he said that. He can't talk to you like that. And other times I would be like, this is normal, you know. Hearing Kat wrestle with understanding how her own denial that was working to protect her was at the same time confusing Colby was powerful. It's my prayer that there's no residual shame for her or for you. We just heard Connie Baker explain the power of denial and how it often serves a purpose. It helps us until it doesn't. In the last episode, I also introduced you to Emily Snook. Emily shared with me her own reckoning with grief and denial as someone dealing with the simultaneous griefs of attempting to understand that a denomination that she invested decades in had really hurt people seeing Christianity and politics unhealthily intertwined, and navigating a pandemic with a blood disorder. And as an aside, I want to acknowledge that not everyone who listens to this podcast is at the same place in regard to their opinions on politics and the COVID-19 pandemic. I hate that a worldwide pandemic has divided us so much. I'm not here to change your mind. I am here to share the account of one person whose grief is very much wrapped up in the fact that, for the most part, 
churches in her area and across the United States have a huge blind spot when it comes to providing community and care for those who cannot worship inside a church building for one reason or another. The recent op-ed in the New York Times by Tish Harrison Warren that argued for discontinuing online services without giving much consideration or nuance to the restrictions of those who are immunocompromised or disabled was another blow for Emily. Just for background, for people who don't know me, um, I have an autoimmune blood disorder and so does my youngest son. And so Mm -hmm. we have been pretty locked down the entire pandemic, but I have been to my friend's church a couple of times. They're very diligent about masks and I was freshly vaccined both times. When we first got the vaccine last spring, and I was like, I'm going to get to go back to church. And then that lasted about six weeks. And then again, the end of last year before things got bad again. So in the past almost two years, I've been inside a church building two times, and it's been the same church, which isn't even in my community. So would you say those cracks that you experienced, one of them has to do with the pandemic? Oh, no, that was one of the explosions later. Okay, not just a crack. That was an explosion. Not a crack. You know how when there's a crack in your your iPhone screen, right? Yeah, you can still use it. This is okay. And then suddenly you're like dodging broken pieces of glass to not cut your finger. I had just some little hairline fractures that I was kind of daintily stepping around. And then all of a sudden it was like in Mission Impossible or something where like you have that creaky noise, but it's okay. And then the next thing you know, you're like in the floor of a warehouse and you're not really sure how you got there. And that's kind of what it's been like for me. So there were a couple of little cracks along the way, but the pandemic mm-hmm. just busted it all open. Yeah. I have heard similar lament from people with mm-hmm. um, autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. just people more at risk. It really sh- a spotlight on an area of our churches that for so long, a lot of us didn't even know was mm-hmm. broken. And we're really behind the eight ball in trying to catch up with that, I think. It hasn't been a priority. For me, lament is the correct word. I think that we kind of get confused and that we think that lament is like complaining that something isn't comfortable or what you Mm. want it to be. But lament is a prophetic declaration of the goodness and righteousness of God and that what is in front of us does not match with that. And so lament is good and holy. And so it's right for us to look at something and say, this is not as it should be. And that that's prophetic work. That's not whining. The sadness that we carry, the sadness exists because we know what goodness is. And so if, if we don't know what is good in terms of like caring for the vulnerable, which my foundation taught me, my faith was very, very tied to Republican politics for a long mm-hmm. time which is another one of those cracks that started to shatter because of being pro-life, because of the value of every human person. And, and the only way to care for, for people who are at risk of the ill and the disabled and the infirm and sick. And then on the opposite end, babies in the womb, like that deep understanding that the goodness and the value of human life is worth protecting and, and, and it's worth trading our rights and our political capital and all of those things to protect. That foundation 
is why this sadness is so mm-hmm. deep for me. It's, it's in part because of feeling my own life devalued, mm-hmm. but it's mostly that like, this is not who I believed us to be. This is not who you taught me to be. And so what do I do with that? When this thing that you taught me that I still believe and know to be good, and now because I really believed it, I'm at odds with you. How do I reconcile that? And so for me, so much of this grief is deep confusion that, and and then just also this understanding of like, maybe the things I've been doing and the avenues I've pursued those things in that were good things. What if I was walking the wrong path to try to get to those things? What if I was walking alongside the wrong people to try to get there? And that grief of who we could have been, who Mm. we should have been, who God has called us to be. And so again, the grief is is a lament of the loss of of what is holy and good, not just, although the mixing of it together makes it harder. I wish that I felt loved and cared for by the church, and I don't generally in this time. That's a very powerful statement. We did a I think an Old Testament class with Sean Groves walking us through like the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament has always been a God of justice and and restoring. And back to lament, justice is God's agreeing with our lament Mm -hmm. and then making the thing that we've declared not right as it should be. And so justice and lament go hand in hand. That's why a prophet is the one who gives us the book of lamentations, right? Because Mm -hmm. the point of the prophets is to stand before the people of God and say, here's what is wrong and here's Mm -hmm. how God is always making it right. Those things go hand in hand. And so what happens when we, which I think this has been a lot of the church's pandemic response, is that we are uncomfortable with lament Mm -hmm. and suffering. And so when we refuse to lament, to allow ourselves the space to have eyes to see what is really there, even when it's sad, even when it's going to cost us, then what we do is we cut ourselves off from the justice and righteousness of God, restoring us to what we should be. And so lament is an avenue for us toward wholeness and toward holiness. It sounds like you're preaching now. Well, listen, I have some words to say about lament. And then I brought the conversation back around to denial and coming out of denial. And it sounds like you had a couple things happening, like slowly reasoning with this isn't what I thought. I can tell you some of the first cracks for me. Some of them are really like interconnected and some of them aren't. One of them was when I was pregnant with my youngest son, I spent a lot of time listening to Lecrae while I was reading a particular book by Dr. Moore, Adopted for Life. And something about the combination of those two things just started to put some cracks in my brain about what I believe to be true about race and just sort of some certainties that I had that were based on being white and certain. And that was one of the first cracks for me, especially with my faith tradition, because I'm Southern Baptist and I, your listeners may or may not be aware, we have some race problems. And so that was one of the first kind of cracks for me is to start to say like, wait, what if I don't know all the things about this that I think I know? The second thing was the day I stopped listening to Rush Limbaugh. It was during the Ebola scare. 
And he's talking about the missionaries who were in Africa being allowed back into the country. And it was something about the way that he was talking about it, the language and the tone. And it was like a switch just flipped in my brain that this is not okay. And this person should not be shaping the way that I think 15 hours a week. And and so those two cracks happened earlier. And the next one was, I asked her if it was okay if I talked about this. It was when I read Jules Woodson's story about her church sexual abuse. And my reaction to that story and to the Me Too things that were coming out and Church Two things that were coming out was so different from the reactions of people who, again, shaped me and formed me to be the person who I was. Not everybody, but a lot of them. And it was just this disconnect of, wait a second. And, and so those three cracks of what does it mean to be pro-life and what does that say about race? What does that say about the value of women and protecting other people? What does that say about politics? Why is my politics married to my faith in my brain? And then what do I do when I know that something is unjust and prophetically lamenting it and saying it out? is called the problem. What do I do with that? And so those were the breaks for me. Oh, well, and then Access Hollywood and and Donald Trump, like which kind of coincided with all that stuff. And so those breaks for me, it was like I was standing on a glass box on top of a rock, right? And so the glass box started to kind of creak Mm -hmm. and break. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly like it just shattered and the next thing I know, I'm sitting on the rock and, and the rock was always there underneath. It hurt to fell through that glass. And now I don't really know what to do. That's where I've always been standing. And, and I don't think that that's just the case for me. I think those things are kind of specific to me, although I also think there it's a lot of us. But I think that we all kind of have these glass boxes that we stand on. And when we look down, we can see the rock underneath it. And so we think that we're standing on the rock and we don't realize that that glass box is there until it starts to shatter. If we don't step off of it in time, then we just get cut to pieces as we fall down to the rock. But eventually we do land on that solid ground and then we have to figure out where to go from there. That doesn't make the pain of how we got there less. When that Access Hollywood tape came out... You know, I think I had already started to realize that my identity had been too tied up mm-hmm. yeah. in politics Me too. than it was in Jesus. I just conflated them. This is the way Christians vote. Mm-hmm. And this is, and of course we believe X, Y, Z. I think I started sliding into that whole reckoning and grief and denial and anger at the same time. Sure. This doesn't make sense from what I thought we were. And I thought it was just a few outliers. I don't think my anger would have been there as much Mm -hmm. if I had not had these blinders of denial on for a while that maybe were protecting me a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's not just a couple people, but the majority of people that identified the way I did as an evangelical believe something and were okay with something completely different than anything Mm -hmm. I could have ever imagined. 
and yeah. people I love. I kept saying I was there for the Clinton impeachment. I heard what y'all said. You don't get to be mad at me for believing what you said. You taught me to believe that character mattered, that character is destiny, especially in leadership. Um, this is something that Beth Moore has talked about a lot. And, and so there's this thing in my brain that like complementarianism is supposed to be, because it's what we're taught, to lift women up and to protect them, right? And then all of these people who are like the defenders of complementarian orthodoxy are, well, I mean, it's just a little bit of sexual assault. I mean, it's not even, we don't even know. It's just joking about it. That's not a big deal. What the heck is the point of you then? If you're not going to stand in this place and say, this is not okay, it's a deal breaker. The reason that we have this authority is to protect women from, I mean, if you were going to look up in a dictionary, the kind of person that we growing up as complementarian girls in the 90s were told the point of male headship was to protect us from, it would just be a picture of Donald Trump. And like you said, like I was already kind of breaking that. This is awkward for me because I'm sure there are people who listen to my podcast who voted for Trump. And I wish I could avoid this part of my story and Emily's story, but I can't do that in good conscience. It's been a tremendous grief for me. So if you're listening and this feels really uncomfortable for you, I want to thank you for being willing to listen and for being willing to sit in that discomfort. There is a cost to entering into someone else's story and grief but I'm certain it's ultimately worth it. What is the point of your authority besides power if it cannot be protective here? And that was another one of those, like I said, interwoven shatterings for me and watching people like Beth Moore and Russell Moore and and pastor friends of mine just get torn apart for saying and believing the things that I said, that that's happening at the same time that our black and brown brothers and sisters are leaving in droves. It's so hard at that point to believe that it's not about power, that for a lot of people, it's the actual untangling of those things that's the problem. Yeah. And like you said, the cognitive dissonance of that, of once I started to see it, and I just started to see it. You know what they say, right? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. I always have two types of listeners in mind when I'm producing these episodes. One listener is the individual who is very aware of their grief and are likely very much in the middle of it right now. The other listener is the person who might not be as impacted directly, but they care about someone who is, or they want to understand that first individual's experience better. I hope you found Connie's explanation of denial, a helpful hook to hang your experience on. I hope it gives you grace that you can accept for yourself and for others. The fact that we sit in that denial means that our subconscious was working exactly the way it was designed. It takes a lot of life and practice to step away from the protection that denial offers. Author and therapist Dr. Diane Langberg says that the paradox of healing from something that has caused great pain is that it involves speaking about the unspeakable. It's that push and pull with denial. I have two questions for all of us as I wrap up this episode. Is it time to open up the cabinet and spend time with that thing that broke your heart? 
and what can we do to see our stories for what they are and work on writing and living a true story that recognizes the past with all of the good and bad in an honest and whole way. This podcast is made possible by support from my Patreon community. For a few dollars a month, they help underwrite the costs of this podcast, and in return, they get a few perks. One of those perks is that my sustainer-level supporters have access to bonus content. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, check out the details at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. And if you loved this episode, share it with a friend. That's one of the best ways you can support this show. You can find show notes at untangledfaith.com, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week as we catch up again with Kat and Emily. It's time to talk about anger.